0: The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. As most of you know, we recently completed our study of Romans 9 through 11. We have spent about seven months working our way through those three marvelous chapters. We are poised to head back into Romans chapter 12 or head into Romans 12 and we're excited to do that. It's going to be a couple months before we actually do that though. Some of you have asked where are we going after uh, having completed those chapters and we are going to head into Romans 12 eventually. Uh, but we would like to do a few things over the summer to kind of set the stage for that. We are at the hinge point of the book of Romans. We have come through the major doctrinal portion, and we are ready to head into the practical portion. Not that doctrine is not practical, it is. And so Paul comes out of the doctrinal portion and gives us the practical realities of what we need to know in light of what he's taught us in these first 11 chapters. But before we dive into that, I want to take some time over the summer to set the stage for it and to kind of help us think about holiness and to think about the importance of holiness and to deal with some of the issues related to holiness that we need to consider in a culture that is not at all concerned about holiness. And so we're going to take some time over the summer to kind of set the stage for that, and so we'll be working our way towards that over the next few weeks. Before we do that, though, I I want to do something different this morning. Uh, You can tell by your sermon notes that I want to deal this morning with an issue why we must not neglect the Older Testament. You can see I put the words or the letters ER in parentheses. I did that for a reason because I like the term older better than old. And here's why. I think sometimes when we refer to the Old Testament, the word old makes it sound outdated. It makes it sound antiquated, old-fashioned, archaic, and therefore irrelevant, and obsolete. And that's the attitude that many people have towards the Old Testament. So I like the term older better because it doesn't communicate the fact that it's outdated or antiquated or old-fashioned. It's just older than the New Testament. And so I want to take some time this morning to deal with a a topical issue, why we must not neglect the Old Testament. You may wonder, where in the world did this come from? Why this topic? This, this seems random. This seems out of the blue. Why would you just pick this topic? Let me give you a couple reasons why I want to preach on this this morning. The first one relates to our study of Romans 9 through 11. If you've been with us in September and we've been working through these three chapters, you will know as well as I do that Paul repeatedly went back to the Old Testament in these chapters. In fact, I went back this week and I counted the number of times that Paul referenced a direct quote from the Old Testament in Romans 9 through 11, and there are at a minimum 28 references to the Old Testament in those three chapters. There are 11 quotes in Romans chapter 9, there are 10 quotes from the Old Testament in Romans chapter 10, and there are seven quotes from the Old Testament in Romans chapter 11. Nearly 30 references in those three chapters to the Old Testament, which is almost one in three verses. That's a lot. That's a lot. And it's obvious that Paul's entire argument in those three chapters depended on support from the Old Testament. It permeated his mind. It flowed from his pen. He was saturated with the Old Testament. And as he's writing on the topics he's addressing in those chapters, he made abundant use of the Old Testament. And so it's obvious that the Old Testament was a formative influence in his mind as he's writing it. And it just flows from his pen as he keeps going back to the Old Testament to prove his points. So that's one reason I felt compelled to to preach on this. I was just struck since September how many times what he was saying depended upon the Old Testament. There's a second reason I felt compelled to preach on this, and it's something that happened recently in evangelicalism. You may or may not have heard that a pastor at a very large megachurch with multi-sites and 36,000 people, Andy Stanley just a couple weeks ago, said, we as the church need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. This is one of the most prominent churches in America with the lead pastor saying that though he believes the Old Testament is divinely inspired, it is not the basis of Christianity. To quote him, he says, Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and we must as well. This is shocking. These are shocking statements. He he called the Old Testament the backstory for the main story. And while it's important, he says, it's violent and disturbing and offends all of our modern senses. And so what he's doing is he is is looking out for the people that are struggling with Christianity and he wants to remove any impediment from them that may hinder them from coming back to Christianity. And so in his mind, the Old Testament is one of those impediments. Here's what he says. Many have lost faith because of something about the Bible or in the Bible, the Old Testament in particular. Once they could no longer accept all the historicity of the Old Testament, suddenly their house of cards of faith came tumbling down because they were taught it's all true, it's all God's word, and if you find one part that's not true, uh uh-oh, the whole thing comes tumbling down. He says, that's not Christianity. The Bible did not create Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus created and launched Christianity. Your whole house of Old Testament cards can come tumbling down. He's concerned that many Christians are turning away from the faith because of what they see and hear in the Old Testament passages, and so he wants to remove those obstructions. He thinks that we need to move past the Old Testament for the sake of the church today, and he bases this on a sermon he preached in Acts chapter 15, where in that chapter, the church leaders in the early church told the Gentile converts that they did not need to adhere to Jewish law in order to become Christians, which is true. That is a true statement. But what he's done is he's essentially said, in the same way, we need to follow their pattern and we need to distance ourselves from the Old Testament as well and not heap that burden on anyone. To quote him again, he says, First century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. Jesus' new covenant, his covenant with the nations, his covenant with you, his covenant with us, can stand up on its own two nail-scarred resurrection feet. It does not need the propping up by the Jewish scriptures. End quote. That should shock you that should shock you when there's a man of that stature who's saying that we we need to distance ourselves from the Old Testament and essentially jettison two-thirds of the Bible in order to help those who are struggling with Christianity. Now, He is, in his zeal, trying to preach against legalism, which I understand and I agree with and I appreciate, and he's trying to preach against Judaizing and the addition of the law and heaping those burdens on. I get that and I agree with that, but in his zeal to exalt the grace of God and celebrate the newness of the new covenant, he has actually undermined the very foundation where those things come from. So, I think it's important for us to talk about this. And you need to know that this is nothing new. This is nothing new as to be something that's just happened in 2018. This is an old heresy known as Marcionism. Marcionism. Marcion was a, a, a son of a bishop. I'm not talking about someone from the outer space. Marcion was a son of a bishop in the Roman church who had a number of theological errors, and one of his errors, the main errors, was he believed that the Old Testament God could not be compatible with the New Testament God. As he read through the Old Testament and he saw a God, a, a, ra- a God of wrath and justice, and then he read the New Testament and he saw Christ and he saw the love and the mercy and the compassion supposedly of Christ displayed in his teachings, he couldn't make sense of the fact that the God of the Old Testament could also be the Father of Jesus Christ. He, he couldn't correlate those. He couldn't bear with the messages of judgment coming from the Scriptures in the Old Testament. He couldn't, he couldn't deal with God being a God of wrath and judgment and a God of The Mount Sinai whose presence made the people cower in faith. And so he believed that Christianity needed to be purged of that kind of God. He didn't believe that God could be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The the love and the goodness of God in Christ could not be seen if God is also a God of wrath and justice and judgment. And so what he did is he decided to make a better Bible. That never goes well. And you know what he did? He did. You know what he ended up with in his Bible? A portion of the book of Luke and selectively edited versions of Paul's epistles, and that's it. No Old Testament and a removal of much of the New Testament in order to take away the passages that seem to present God as a God of wrath and justice. This is Marcionism. And so what you have today, when you have a a main leader in the church in America saying that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, this is Neo-Marcionism. This is that old heresy just brought back in a new form and a new fashion. Unfortunately... I think the attitude that's been communicated through that is in the common attitude that's reflected in the church today. This antipathy towards the Old Testament, this this attitude of disinterest and the belief that the Old Testament is kind of outdated and just a book of Jewish religion. And it's one of those parts of the Bible that you just don't go to very much. It's not that important. And this is the prevailing attitude, I believe, in many churches and many Christians' hearts. Well, Kaiser, the great Old Testament scholar, says this, he says, instead of receiving the Old Testament with gratitude as a gift from God, all too many in Christ's church view it as an albatross around the necks of contemporary Christians. They struggle with questions like, what is the significance of the Old Testament for us today? Why should believers even bother with the Old Testament now that we have the New Testament? Aren't there a lot of problems in using a book like the Old Testament, especially when so much of it is no longer in force and normative for the church? Questions such as these ultimately raise the issue of the Old Testament as a major problem. I think he's right. I think many in the church today view the Old Testament as an albatross hanging around our necks it shouldn't be the way it is now i understand some of the struggle I I get it a little bit. I mean, the New Testament seems clearer. The New Testament is the place you're going to go to when you want to hear Christ teach. The New Testament is the place you're going to go when you want to describe the gospel. It's more concise. It's more systematic. On the flip side, in the Old Testament, what you have is drawn out, and it's more poetic, and its message is more cryptic, and at times, it's more difficult to understand, and it's hard to understand all the the history of what's going on, and there's instructions about laws and genealogies and difficult things like blueprints of buildings sometimes even some gruesome things like killing and genocide and some weird passages about goopy bodily fluids. So I get it a little bit. I also understand that we're under the new covenant, that we as a church, as New Testament saints, we are under the new covenant. We are under today the the new covenantal regulations. We're not under the old covenant. We're not under the law, and so... In reality, that is why we do preach more often from the New Testament here. We believe that the New Testament is the the place that we go to understand God's plan for the church today and the message of the gospel today, and so we, we understand that. But listen, we don't ignore the Old Testament. It's why we're reading through the Psalms this summer. It's why I've preached through Daniel and why I've preached through Jonah and why I've preached through Ecclesiastes and why I'm considering going to the book of Proverbs whenever we're done with Romans, whenever that is. We're not ignoring the Old Testament. And unfortunately, a number of factors, I believe, have caused many Christians to come to the point where they don't see this portion of Scripture as critical and important to their lives. Things like liberalism, which has attacked the Old Testament for decades, has brought people to the point where they don't trust or see the need for the Old Testament. Ignorance has contributed to this. People know little little about the history of the Old Testament. Many people think that the Old Testament is irrelevant to their lives. It can be hard work at times to try and figure out what's going on in the Old Testament. And so many Christians want to just skip it. Many Christians don't want to deal with it. Many churches don't preach from it. And I would submit to you that the Old Testament has great value for us today. And so, for a few moments this morning, I would like to give you some reasons why we must not neglect the Old Testament, the older Testament. Or, in other words, five reasons why we must not unhitch ourselves from the older Testament. This is not going to be from a specific passage this morning. This is one of those topical messages which someone told me once you can preach a topical message once every five years and then repent. So. I will do that this morning and then repent after the service. Five reasons why we must not neglect the Older Testament. Number one, it was appealed to by the New Testament writers as their authority. The Old Testament was appealed to by the New Testament writers as their authority. In other words, the Old Testament was the Bible of the early church. The Old Testament was the Bible of Jesus. The Old Testament was the Bible of the apostles. The Old Testament was the Bible that Paul quoted from in his letters. It was the Old Testament. And that's exactly what we've seen in Romans 9 through 11. I told you last time I wasn't going to preach another sermon on Romans 9 through 11. But I'm going to go back there. So go back to Romans 9 through 11 for just a moment. And I just want to show you a couple things. I want you to see that Paul's whole message... Was dependent on the Old Testament. In fact, I want you to notice that in three specific places in Romans 9 through 11 is the word Scripture. Go with me to Romans chapter 9, verse 17. And I want you to see for just a moment that Paul uses the word Scripture, the word graphe in Greek, and it always in these cases is pointing to the Old Testament. Romans 9, verse 17. Paul says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, and then he quotes it. For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That's a quotation from Exodus chapter 9. Where does he go in scripture to prove that point? Where does he go to prove the fact that God can have mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy and have compassion on whomever he wants to have compassion? Where does he go? He goes to the scripture Exodus chapter 9. Go to Romans 10. Very next chapter, verse 11. Romans 10, verse 11. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Where does Paul go to prove that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved? Where does he go to prove that reality? He goes to the Scripture. Isaiah chapter 28. Go to Romans chapter 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know that the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel, and he quotes, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. So Paul says that if you're going to understand that God has not forsaken his people and always has a remnant, where does he go to prove that? He goes to the Scripture, 1 Kings chapter 19. See what he's doing? The Scriptures are the Old Testament for Paul. And in order for him to prove his point, he has to go back to the Scriptures, the Old Testament that he knows so well, and that becomes the basis of his authority as he's writing Romans 9, 10, and 11. Absolutely critical. Go back to Romans chapter 9. And let me just give you a couple specific examples of this. Again, I'm not going to teach the text as much as I just want you to see what Paul is doing in these passages. He wants us in Romans chapter 9 to understand that God has elected His people Israel, that they are His chosen people, and I want you to notice verse 4, Romans 9 verse 4. He says, "'Who are the Israelites?' To whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and that whom and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. What a list of privileges. Israel has all of those privileges. They have the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promise, the, the fathers. Those all belong to Israel. How does Paul know that, and where does Paul get that information from? He has to get from the Old Testament. How does he know that Israel has been adopted as sons? The book of Exodus and Hosea tell us. How does he know that they are the glory of God's people, that the glory of God's people is Israel? It says it in Exodus chapter 24. How does he know about the covenants which are Israel's? He knows that from Abrahamic covenant in chapter 12 of Genesis. He knows that about the Mosaic covenant in Exodus chapter 19. He knows about the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he knows about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Where does he know about the giving of the law? The Old Testament. Where does he know about the temple service? The Old Testament. Where does he know about the promises and the fathers? It's all from the Old Testament. So Paul's entire basis of the fact that God has chosen his people, Israel, to be an elect people, to be a special people to him, comes from his understanding of the Old Testament. Look down in chapter 9, verse 7, and he even proves this by showing that God chose Isaac over Ishmael by quoting from Genesis chapter 21. And then in verses 12 and 13, he proves that God chose Jacob over Esau by quoting from Genesis and Malachi. You see, Paul's whole argument in the chapter 9 of Romans is based on the Old Testament. He can't prove what he's going to prove about God choosing Israel if he doesn't have the Old Testament. Go to chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Actually, we'll look at the end of verse 10. Uh, chapter 9 first of all chapter 9 is about Israel's election chapter 10 is about their rejection the fact that they rejected their messiah and rejected God so how did Paul understand this how did he have a an awareness of the fact that God knew that his people would reject him he goes back to the old testament look back in Romans 9 verse 31 But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling block, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Paul knew that Israel would reject their Messiah. And how did he know that? Because Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28 talked about it. So here's a man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who clearly understands the centrality of the Old Testament in predicting and knowing that Israel would reject their Messiah. Now look at Romans 10, verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. That's a quote from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. He says, listen, whoever relies on his own obedience to the law is held accountable for everything that the law requires because that's what Leviticus said. Look Down in chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Paul's whole point is listen, the gospel was near Israel, and the reason they rejected it was not because it was far away from them, but because they chose not to receive it by faith. How did he know that? Because the Old Testament told us. How about chapter 11? Chapter 9 is about Israel's rejection. Chapter 10 is about Israel's, I'm sorry, chapter 9 is about Israel's election. Chapter 10 is about their rejection. Chapter 11 is about their restoration. And how does Paul know that they will be restored? Look at Romans 11, verses 26 and 27. It says it. Romans eleven twenty six, 26. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. How did he know that? Because Isaiah 59 said it. Look at verses 28 and 29. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. How does Paul know that they've been... Called? How do they know that they have gifts? How do they know that he's, they are loved for the sake of the fathers? Because the Old Testament tells us. You understand the point? Paul had no other source of authority. This is it. The foundation of Paul's teaching in these three chapters is none other than the Old Testament. And if you take that away, he has no ability to teach what he's teaching in these three chapters. So that's one reason we can't neglect the Old Testament. Unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? What are you going to do? Take out Romans 9 through 11 then as well? can't do that. Number two. Another reason we cannot neglect the Older Testament, its use by the New Testament writers informs us how to properly interpret the Bible. Its use, I know that's a long one, Its use by the New Testament writers informs us how to properly interpret the Bible. In other words, we gain insight and wisdom into how to study and interpret the Bible based on how the New Testament writers study and interpret the Old Testament. Do you understand that? This is a massive topic. There are books and tomes written on this whole subject of the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. It's called intertextuality. Intertextuality has to do with how one part of the Bible relates to another, how one writer uses other parts of the Bible, how Old Testament writers used portions of the Old Testament, and how New Testament writers used portions of the Old Testament. That's known as the science of intertextuality. A study of how biblical writers used the Bible in relation to one another. We don't have time this morning to go into it in great detail, but let me give you just kind of a synopsis of why it's important for you to understand this. It's critical to understand this because if we can figure out how the New Testament writers used the Old Testament, we can figure out how we need to study and interpret the Scriptures today. That's critical because, let's face it, there are massive disagreements today in the church on how to interpret the Bible, right? You talk to 20 different people about what a passage means, you might get 20 different answers because there's not agreement on how to interpret the Bible. And one person says, I think it means this, and another person says, I think it means this. It's very subjective. So how do you interpret the Bible correctly? How do you know that when you study it, you've got the right interpretation? How do you know that when you teach it, you're going to teach it correctly? This is a critical, critical issue. And the reason you have disagreements with people about what the Bible says is because ultimately you disagree on how to interpret it. You can press every disagreement about how to interpret or what the Bible says about an issue based on how you're interpreting that passage. It's a very, very important topic. So, the question is, how do we know we're interpreting the Bible correctly? One of the ways we know, one of the very simple ways is to study how New Testament writers used the Old Testament, pay attention to what they're doing, and then we can pattern ourselves after them because they are the ones that are inspired, led by the Holy Spirit as they're writing Scripture. So, the question is, can we establish a pattern in how New Testament writers use the Old Testament and does that help us in interpreting the Scriptures? I believe there is a pattern. And I believe when you understand that pattern, it gives you window and insight into how we need to understand and interpret the Scriptures as well. One writer says this, quote, "...we can learn how to study the sacred text." from what the biblical writers instructed us to do, as well as from seeing them use Scripture. You ever thought about this? You can learn how to study the Bible by seeing how New Testament writers studied the Bible and used it in their writings. He goes on to say, the New Testament's use of the Old teaches us the nature of hermeneutics, which is the science of Bible study. The prophets, prophets and apostles' use of Scripture can be used to help shape our understanding of God's Word. They were not hermeneutical ignoramuses who have abused the Scripture. We do not know better than them. Rather, moved by the Holy Spirit, they were brilliant, and we ought to humbly follow them. Their faithful hermeneutic provides us the certainty that the way we are traditionally taught to interpret the Bible is the method the Bible upholds, literal grammatical historical hermeneutics is not a modern formulation, but how the biblical writers read the scriptures. The Christian hermeneutic follows the prophets and apostles and is thereby a hermeneutic of obedience. In other words, we can learn how to study the Bible by looking at how the New Testament writers studied the Bible and used it in their writings. In other words, the Christian method of interpretation Ought to be the apostolic method of interpretation, ought to be the prophetic method, message of interpretation. You understand that? How we interpret the scriptures should be modeled after how the New Testament writers interpreted the scripture, should be modeled after how the prophets used the scriptures in the Old Testament. So the question is is there a pattern? Absolutely, there is. There is a pattern. And let me just use Romans nine through eleven again as an evidence of the fact that the foundation of their message was the Old Testament properly interpreted in its context. So go with me to Romans chapter nine. Let me just show you some of these very quickly. Romans nine verse thirteen. And I want you to notice how many times the phrase "just as it is written" occurs in these three chapters. Romans nine thirteen. Just as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 33, Romans 9. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Chapter 10, verse 15. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Chapter 11, verse 8. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And then Romans 11, verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. And every time Paul uses the phrase, just as it is written, he follows it with an Old Testament quotation. What's he doing? He's using the Old Testament in context. He's using the Old Testament exactly how it was written in its historical setting, in its literal historical context, and he's paying attention to that as he's using it here in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Let me show you one other pattern. Go back to Romans 9. It's the word for followed by an Old Testament quotation. It's the word for followed by an Old Testament quotation. Look at Romans 9, verse 9. For, this is the word of promise, and then he quotes from the Old Testament. Look in verse 15, Romans 9, verse 15. For, he says to Moses, and he quotes the Old Testament. Go over to chapter 10, verse 13. For, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Quotation from the Old Testament. Go over to chapter 11, verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or became his counselor, a quotation from the Old Testament. Paul is consistent in his usage of the Old Testament in its original setting. Let me give you just one quick example and give, give you more insight into this. You're in Romans 11. Look at verses 34 and 35. Verse 34, as I just read, is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. And in Isaiah chapter 40, God is saying, I'm going to deliver you one day when you're captive to the Babylonians. I'm going to send you away. I'm going to release you from that captivity. And he's going to describe the greatness of God in doing that. And he says in Isaiah chapter 40, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor? You can't fathom what God's going to do and how He's going to deliver His people from Babylon, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 40. And Paul now comes to Romans 11 and uses the same contextual argument here to prove that when we come to understand God's ways in salvation and redemption, it blows our mind. Same context. Verse 35. Or... Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? That's a quotation from Job chapter 41. And Job spent all those chapters kind of complaining and trying to figure out why God was doing this and why this was happening. And God speaks to him out of the whirlwind and basically says to him, Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Job, do I owe you anything? And that's Paul's point here in Romans 11. It's the same exact point. Why does God do what he does? Why does he draw people to himself through the nation of Israel's disobedience? Why does he bring the gospel to the Gentiles? Why is God not done with Israel? How is his whole plan of God and, and redemption put together? It's not because of anything you deserve. He's not in debt to you. It's the same context. So what I want you to see is that there is a method of biblical interpretation that can be gleaned from studying how the New Testament writers use the Old Testament. So, you know, people say to me sometimes, Todd, how do you know your interpretation of the Bible is right? Know what I say? Because it is. You say, how do you know? Because I'm following the same rules and patterns that the apostles used in their usage of the Old Testament and the same principles that the Old Testament writers used in their understanding of the Old Testament. Now, listen, I admit there's times I may not understand everything, and there's difficult passages and there's difficult texts where we have to kind of make some best guesses as to what he's saying. I understand that there's some difficult passages. I'm not trying to be arrogant or prideful about that, but I understand how we are interpreting the scripture is the correct way to interpret the scripture, literally, historically, grammatically, because that's the pattern that was established by New Testament writers. So, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? Not a chance. You just removed then the, a way of understanding how we're inter- to interpret the Bible. Number three, it is inspired and profitable. Why else should we not neglect the Older Testament? It is inspired and profitable. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You know these verses. These are the go-to passages for... Those who believe in the inspiration of Scripture, this is the life verse of those who hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. You know this. You've studied it. You've probably memorized these two verses, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. He says the Scriptures are inspired. That's not how we use the word inspired. When we use the word inspired, we oftentimes mean, you know, I was thinking and I was meditating and I was out on a mountaintop and, and I had this great thought. Oh, I had, a, I had an inspiration. That's not what the writer here is meaning. Paul says when he's referring to inspiration, he's literally meaning that the word of God is God-breathed. That's what the word means, theopneustos. Theos, God, nustos comes from the word pneuma, which is wind or breathing. The word of God, the scriptures, are God-breathed breathed. And that does not mean that God wrote them and then breathed life into them. It literally means that God spoke them through the writers of Scripture. So, when you read Scriptures, the Scriptures, you are reading the very voice of God. They are inspired. They are God-breathed. And what are these inspired, God-breathed scriptures do to us and for us? Look at verse 16. It's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. And I love those four descriptions of what the Word of God does. It teaches, it reproves, it corrects, and it trains in righteousness. And I I have to think about someone who's on a path. They're first taught to be on the path, That's the first word. And then if they get off that path of righteousness, the Word of God reproves us and tells us that we're off that path. And then the third word says it corrects us, meaning the the Scriptures correct us and tell us how to get back on that path. And then the fourth word, training, it teaches us and trains us to stay on the path. That's what the Word of God does. It teaches, it reproves, it corrects, and it trains so that you're equipped for every good work. And not only that, look up a couple of verses before that. Look up to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul says to Timothy, you, however, continue in the things you have learned to become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Paul says to Timothy, the sacred writings have brought you wisdom that leads to salvation. You see the Word of God? It is capable of making you wise unto salvation, and when you're saved, it is capable of teaching and training and correcting and keeping you on God's path. Here's the question. What scripture is Paul referring to? What are the sacred writings that Paul is referring to here? What did, they, what did Timothy have access to at that point as Paul is telling him the inspiration of Scripture and the value of the sacred writings? It was the Old Testament. May have been some New Testament written at this point that Paul and Timothy had access to, but primarily, Paul has at his disposal, and Timothy has at his disposal, the Old Testament. It is the Old Testament that is inspired by God. It is the Old Testament that is capable of making you wise unto salvation. Why? Because it's all God-breathed, Old and New Testament, and it's all profitable for life and ministry, Old and New Testament. Think, think, think about it. Just think about it for a moment. Take Psalms out of your life. Can you imagine that? Take the Proverbs away. Take the Song of Solomon away. Where are you going to go to understand marriage? Take Ecclesiastes away. Where are you going to go and figure out some meaning in this messed up world that we live in? And while you're at it, take all the historical books and all the major and minor prophets away and try and figure out where history is going. Good luck. The Word of God, in its entirety, Old and New Testament, is inspired and profitable. Listen to Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. What was written? Before, what was written in earlier times for our instruction to give us hope? The Old Testament. So, unhitched from it? I don't think so. Number four, it is given as an example for New Testament believers. It was appealed to by New Testament writers as their authority. Number two, it was used by the New Testament writers and how it does informs us how to properly interpret the Bible. Number three, it's inspired and profitable. Number four, it's given to us as an example for New Testament believers. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about the value of the Old Testament as a, as a way of giving us examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now watch this, verse 6. Now these things happened. What things? The things that happened in the Old Testament, the things that happened under Moses, the things that happened in Israel, those things happened. What? As examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. It's meant to be an example. Now keep reading. Look at verse 7. What kind of examples do we have in Israel? Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. You want to see some gross examples of the dangers of idolatry and immorality and testing God and complaining? Just start reading the Old Testament. Verse 11 says they were written for our instruction and where they were they written. They were written in the Old Testament. And so again, think about, just for a moment, if you take the Old Testament away, you take away two-thirds of the Bible, which is filled with examples on how we should live and examples of godliness and examples of trust in the Lord, and it's filled with examples of how not to do it. We need David's example. We need Moses' example. We need to learn from these men and how to walk with the Lord and be godly. We need the example of Naomi and Ruth and how to walk like that. And we also need the failures of David and the failures of Moses and the failures of Solomon and the failures of the nation of Israel so that we learn as well. It's an example. Last, number five. Last reason why we must not neglect the Old Testament is it points us to Christ. It points us to Jesus Christ. This is a whole series in and of itself. The Old Testament is the shadow and Jesus is the substance, but Jesus' person and work only makes sense when it's grounded in the Old Testament. You can't understand Jesus' ministry. you can't understand His teachings. You can't understand what He's doing in redemptive history. You can't understand any of what He's trying to communicate through His parables if you do not understand the Old Testament. Walt Kaiser says this, one of the tragic results of separating the Old Testament from the New is that the believing community fails to see that Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection were clearly anticipated long before the events occurred. By viewing the Older Testament as a message that is non-Christian, the expectation is set in advance for some that there is nothing Christological or messianic to be gained from studying, must less reading, teaching, and preaching the Old Testament. But such a view flies in the face of the evidence from the text itself. The Messiah is at the heart of the message of that neglected portion of the Bible. End quote. You understand that nearly every aspect of Christ's life and ministry was prophesied in the Old Testament? His birth, Isaiah chapter 7. His death, Isaiah chapter 53. His resurrection, Psalm 16 his coming kingdom and rule, Genesis 49, 2 Samuel Samuel 7, Psalm 110, Isaiah 9, verse 6, our famous Christmas verse, for a child was born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David... And over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. How do you know that Christ is coming again? And how do you know what Christ is coming to do again? The Old Testament tells us He is coming to establish His kingdom. And that, friends, is the message of the Bible. The glory of God displayed in the establishment of an earthly kingdom. That's what God is doing. That's the message of the Bible from beginning to end, from creation to new creation. The message of the Bible is that God is building His kingdom, a kingdom that centers around His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you excise the Old Testament, you have cut off the major portion of the Scriptures that tells us what He is coming to do. There's a lot more reasons I could give you. Those are five. Cut ourselves off from the Old Testament? Unhinge, unhitch, neglect it? I don't think Paul would have agreed with that. I don't think the apostles or the prophets would have agreed with that, and I guarantee you Christ would not have agreed with that. So, very simple implication Are you reading the Old Testament? Have you spent some time in the Old Testament? Have you dug into the prophets? Have you dug into the historical books? Have you dug into Leviticus? Because you should. Or are you just a Psalms-only person? Or are you just a New Testament person? Beloved, go back to the Old Testament. As one writer puts it, to put it bluntly, we should know the older two thirds of the Bible as well as its younger brother. Do you? Father, we thank you for these realities, we thank you for the Older Testament. We thank you that in it, we come to know you. We come to see examples of what it means to walk with you and how not to walk with you. We see truths proclaimed about what you're doing in human history and your plans for the end. God, let us not be following the trends of our day, even within the church. Let us be a people who put our stake in the ground and say the scriptures, all of them, Old and New Testament are inspired and profitable for us. Father, may we be a people who, who understands the value of your word as a whole, not parts, not pieces, not segments, not just the parts that we like or feel good to us. Let us be whole Bible Christians. For your honor and for your glory, we pray these things in your name. Amen. questions we can talk about it for a few minutes in our second hour if you'd like so uh, join me down there Uh, in a little while we have classes for our kids and uh, please stick around enjoy some cake to celebrate our graduates and uh, purposely seek out someone today that you can minister to someone around you needs some prayer some encouragement why don't you take some time to not just bolt out of here and leave but take some time to minister to the people around you so we'll see you later this week you're dismissed